Plant Heroes acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The threatened status of, of this plant probably doesn't reflect how threatened it really is. It is common for orchids not, not to emerge every year, um, but for the whole population to have not emerged, yeah, it's a bit of a worry. The number of sites that it's found in has dwindled over the years and initiating new sites that are threat-free and that were self-sustaining is really important. But I'm not an orchid sort of person, you know, there, there tends to be orchid people and non-orchid people. I, I wouldn't say I'm a non-orchid person, but I'm not an orchid person. Yeah. <laughs> Botany and ecology is my background, so I love all plants and, you know, the opportunity to work with something threatened and hopefully hold it back or bring it back from the brink is, yeah, a really um, cool and important project to be involved in, I think. Liza, put a smile upon your face. I want to see you blow, so let your essence show Amongst the people who are down like me Amongst the people who are down like me Oh, Liza Welcome to Plant Heroes. I'm Chantel, and in this niche little series, we have been meeting Australian people conserving plants by moving them away from threats or bolstering existing populations using a technique called translocation. This is our last episode and we couldn't finish the series without exploring conservation of that coveted, showy, elusive, cryptic and mischievous family, the orchids. First up, one of Australia's foremost orchid conservation heroes. My name's Nushka Reiter. I'm a senior research scientist at the Royal Botanic Garden Victoria that I've been involved in. Probably over um, 50 species translocations. Certainly quite a, a lot over almost 20 years. Seems like an odd question, but what is an orchid? Well, orchidaceae is a large plant family, okay? Um, We'd like to say that it's the largest plant family in the world, but it's not. It gets um, pipped at the post by the daisies. But that being said, there's still well over 25,000 uh, species of orchid globally, and they come in about every colour, form and size that you could think of. They're epiphytes, they're terrestrials. Some of them, you know, like our wonderful Rizenthella, live entirely underground. People like to say orchids comes um, because it essentially means that they have testicle-like tubers and many of our terrestrial orchids do. They have, you know, two tubers underground. But the fact is most of our epiphytes don't. Um, we have terrestrials that don't. We have, you know, spaghetti root sort of formations in, in many of these things. The flower arrangements of orchids can otherwise change depending on which group that you're working with but the one thing that you can always be dependent that an orchid has is a column <laughs> and that's a structure that includes both the stigma and the pollinia. The pollinia is the little glob of pollen grains that often adheres to pollinators and gets carried from one plant to another for pollination.
orchid translocations are an extra bit tricky because in accordance with their variety of growing habits and co-evolution with other species, they have developed some very unique pollinator relationships and requirements for seed germination. Basically, all of our terrestrial orchids are reliant on mycorrhizal fungi in order to germinate in the wild. And we grow them in the lab with their mycorrhizal fungi. The techniques for isolating mycorrhizal fungi vary, but for the caladenia, or spider orchids, which you'll learn more about later, it goes something like this. We actually take a small section, in this case it's of the collar, which is just sort of below the leaf, and then we take that back to the lab and we use sort of specialised techniques where we open that up under the laminar flow. The laminar flow is a sealed cabinet that pumps in sterile air so no other fungi or pathogens can settle on the petri dish. And under a microscope you can then see um, pelotons which are not large groups of bike riders running around my petri dish but sort of small coily bowls of fungi which look like tiny little white dots under the microscope. And using pipettes, we move them across to some sort of agar that's uh, suited to that type of mycorrhizal fungi. We culture those up and check our identification, both visually and quite a lot through sequencing. Nushka's team sequences specific regions of DNA to make sure that they correlate with the particular fungal group they expect. And then we try that mycorrhizal fungi with um, the seeds and also if um, they germinated, you know, we proved that they were mycorrhizal because they could germinate the orchid. And then having, having identified our mycorrhizal fungi, we'll then use that in the propagation. But what if the fungi required for germination doesn't occur at the site you want to plant the species? Then they wouldn't survive and they wouldn't be able to recruit. Another thing that guarantees planted orchids won't survive long term is pollinators, or lack of. Orchids have the most amazing pollination systems in our um, plant kingdom. I mean, they've been fascinating everyone since Darwin. So, you know, this has been a, a long-standing in, intrigue. Orchids can be pollinated by bees, wasps and birds, and they attract these pollinators with food deception. So they can tell the pollinators by their colour and their smell that they're probably going to provide a nectar or food reward, but they're deceptive, so they don't. You get orchids which actually do provide a food reward. There are small amounts of nectar on their labellum. Sexual deception. They basically attract their pollinators by chemical cues, pheromones, if you will. And as you can imagine, the chemicals that are emitted are really, really specific because otherwise there'd be all sorts of was species mating with the wrong females. And sometimes just plain old mechanics. You also have this wonderful thing called mechanical fit as well. So where the size between the labellum and the column needs to be a really good fit for the size of the animal. So if it's too small, it's just not going to be big enough to get the pollen popped on its back. Yeah, so I guess whenever you've got really specific pollinator relationships, you really need to make sure that the pollinator's present and that you're getting your plants pollinated before you introduce them in large numbers. As I said, orchids 
kind of get complicated. But don't worry, Nushka has it all laid out. What do you need to do from inception to completion for a successful orchid conservation translocation? Translocation is not something that can be started and finished within a year. It's involved. Step one, set up the team. And it involves many stakeholders. So it'll be interested community, it'll be researchers, it'll be land managers, it'll be species experts. Step two, check it is actually a unique species. Be sure that it's a sound species before you go any further. Step three, learn everything you possibly can about its ecology, breeding and growing requirements. Allocate potentially two to three years to understanding what the pollinator is, where it's distributed in the landscape, three or four years to the propagation, a couple of years with a really good population geneticist to understand whether you might need to undertake genetic rescue a couple of years to understanding what the diversity of the mycorrhiza is that you will need to be putting back into your ex situ collection and your subsequent translocation population. Step four, identify threats. That is, why it's threatened and also are there any threats continuing at the proposed translocation location? Is it suffering from inbreeding depression? Is it suffering from overgrazing? Are there phytophthora issues with your species? Is there other diseases that you need to consider? You may have feral animals in the area that require active management. Many translocations involve fencing that keeps out overabundant macropods, hares or deer. Step five, budget. In my discussions with many people so far, the common figures for translocation are in the tens of thousands, but it can be as high as the hundreds of thousands and depending on scale, even higher. Step seven. Did I say admin? Yes. Remember, you need to do paperwork, permits, translocation plan, reporting and meetings. So there is a wonderful world of forms that goes with this and they are not quick. Probably add a, a week of meetings a year if you're working from 10% of your time on reporting. Step nine, planting time. Provided you had a team of 10 or 15 people, you could probably get 200 back in the ground a day. <laughs> hmm. Do some quick maths. The turnaround time from inception to planting is roughly five years. 10. How do you know when to get out? And what happens if it all fails? Orchids can go dormant and you mightn't be able to tell whether your orchid is dormant or it's dead. The other thing that you keep in mind is not all translocations work. So you need an exit strategy. Exit strategies are there for a purpose so that you're not leaving fencing, caging, all that sort of stuff just accumulating in the wild in a spot where it's not working and no one's going to go back to. And finally, don't forget to share what you've learnt. That goes even more so for the ones that weren't successful because that at least gives us an inkling of, well, we've 
probably shouldn't repeat that again. So <laughs> I don't have a list in front of me, but usually one has a sort of <laughs> a fairly good checklist for this kind of stuff. <laughs> Takeaway. Orchids take a lot of effort and a lot of time, but they are fascinating. Let's break down some of the interesting parts with two species. The glorious metallic sun orchid, Thelemitra epipactoides, and the delicate Caledonia colorata. Two species, two projects, and one moment that will last a lifetime. It's particularly um, luscious, I think you'd say the word was, for uh, if it puts up a couple of leaves and then you get this single flower spike. And it can stand up to half a metre tall and it get multiple blooms on it. So it's spectacular, that's the word. It's a spectacular looking species. But it's the flowers of the metallic sun orchid that really capture people's attention. They are iridescent blue-purple and shine like the metallic paint job of a much-loved custom car. My name is Susan Taylor and I work for the Environment Program in the Gippsland region of the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning in Victoria. Susan and the Victorian government needed to find out about the ecology, growing habits and threat status of this orchid before they could go any further. Luckily, they had the very proactive support of the Australian Native Orchid Society, a group of volunteers. Here is Richard Thompson, who was instrumental in tracking the populations. About 22 years ago, mm -hmm we became aware that some of them were seriously in trouble from the surveys and from looking at old records of populations and where they'd been and how condensed they were compared to what they had been 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So we knew there was a collapse of population. There didn't seem to be seedling occurrence within the populations. As part of their surveys, the Australian Native Orchid Society also identified some very unique habitat preferences. It occurs in an ecotone between Ceylon wetlands and Banksy woodlands, heathy woodlands. And even within that band, that ecotone, it occurs on slight rises. Is that it? So aside from a narrow habitat niche, which was susceptible to climate change and salinity, what else was causing populations to crash? The whole period from emergence to flowering to seed set takes months. And during this time, it's a highly palatable, highly vis um, visible species. We're being overrun by deer who are voracious browsers. The main population in Gippsland also wasn't in a conservation reserve. It was on a roadside. It was well known by naturalists and sadly was being loved so much it was inadvertently being trampled. 
Susan and Richard needed to find somewhere with rises in saline ecotones, protected from grazing and people, to set up an insurance population. We were lucky. Gippsland Water property had this ecotone. How lucky. And yep. they said, yeah, you can plant there. And yeah, we'll build the fence. The other thing about that, because it's Gippsland Water, and this is a real challenge too, they can restrict people coming onto their property. A lot of public land can't. My involvement in the planning probably um, consisted of selecting the site um, based on what I'd seen from the source population in terms of ecology. Um, elevation and hydrology and that sort of thing was quite important because we're right on the edge of a lake. So we had to set up an enclosure, um, actually, you know, construct a permanent enclosure um, that we could have um, excluding rabbits, um, deer, kangaroos, wallabies, wombats, all the sorts of things that like to eat um, orchids on occasion, um, plus the odd stray sheep or something like that that might come through the area. We decided to take five of those plots and plant them and just around the corner from where this extant population was. We popped them in the ground and they survived. They survived the translocation and they grew. It may have seemed fortuitous that these orchids grew so well, but actually years were spent identifying the other ecological quirks that this species required. From the first eight plants, they upscaled using 192 individuals grown at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria, and planted in 2018. And it was a really, really nice day, really nice sunny day, so that, that always helps. I mean, it wasn't blowing a gale, which it usually is down there. Everyone was in a great mood and it, everything just went really smoothly. It was, a, it was a long day. It's surprising how long it takes to plant 192 plants when you're dealing with something you know, so small and fragile. If my contractors came back and told me that they had um, six or seven people on site and planted 192 plants for the day, I'd be asking a few questions about why. But... <laughs> Um, it was a, yeah, it's a slow and quite tedious process doing all the measurements before and making sure everything's planted correctly and along transects and all this sort of thing. Traditional, traditional tube stock planting is, you know, pop it out of your tube and throw it in the ground. The orchids have a, a much more um, fickle, um, I guess, root system, um, quite brittle and they grow in a, a bit of a bigger pot. But they're actually removed from the pot and most of the soil is removed as well before being put in the ground, which was news to me when I, I did this. I'd never planted orchids before. And then um, prior to planting, we did a bunch of measurements of um, tuber and uh, leaf length and um, all those sorts of things before they went in the ground so we could monitor health over time. Um, yeah, it's a, a hugely collaborative effort. It, it couldn't have been achieved, I don't think, by any one party. Um, there's all sorts of different expertise, knowledge and resources that come in from all different parties. Perversely, although it was fenced to protect from grazing, managing the site relies on grazing. It'd be quite easy to walk away, lock up the gates and pretend everything's fine, but because we've excluded all grazers, um, the grass, it's unbelievable how fast grass grows when there's not things eating it every night. Um, so that, that's just one thing. But, you know, the, by, by excluding grazers, we also get plants popping up in there, which could quite easily 
smother out everything. So we can basically open up about a third of each side um, by opening up gates to allow grazing to come through at the right time of year to reduce the biomass, um, to allow the orchids, the, the space and the light to, to come back up each year. What about the cost of all this? The Australian Native Orchid Society estimate around 7,000 in volunteered labour searching for populations, plus some extra dollars for fuel and accommodation, which was covered by the Victorian government. There was 9,000 roughly for growing the orchids. That was the cold hard cash that had to be found through funding grants. Then set up planting Ongoing monitoring and maintenance, plus the fencing, were all covered by Gippsland Water staff and volunteer labour, totalling around $10,000 plus $1,500 per annum. So not, not, not cheap by, any, um, by anyone's imagination the, for such a small area. But yeah, it just shows that yeah, this, this project in particular, quite a very sensitive plant, needs a lot more um, money and, and input and resources to be able to get um, you know a similar sort of outcome where you get plants growing year after year it's been quite a, a good move this this translocation because we haven't actually seen the source population emerge in the last i think we're we're talking now four years so it's looking increasingly likely that that source population has gone extinct as well but what has been the outcome of those 192 plants good good um I'll leave it at that, Willa. <laughs> so at 2019, we had 165 plants re-emerge. And in 2020, we had 162 plants re-emerge out of the 192. We may have lost a few, but also they may just not be emerging that year. It's not always the same plant that hasn't emerged. What I did notice, though, was a bit of a decline in flowering. So we had 56 flower in the first year after planting in 2019 and only 28 flower last year in the 2020 monitoring. The next um, achievement we'd like to see is, is recruitment. I don't think you can ask any more than that. If you're, you're creating recruitment in a new area where you don't know that the species has occurred before, yeah, I think you've done your job as best you can. That is really difficult to achieve. And even with her experience of over 50 projects, there was still room for excitement in the Caledonia Colorata translocation. It's uh, nationally endangered. It's a gorgeous little spider orchid. Um, and Victoria is only known from a handful of populations near the little desert. Like Thelemitra, the numbers of populations were dwindling. The key difference from the Thelemitra work, though, is how Nushka and the team approached the project from the start. It was extraordinarily systematic. And an introduction, that is creating an entirely new population where it has never been recorded before. This population occurs on private land and the owners are very tight-lipped about having this secret species on their property. So you won't be hearing from them. So would have started with um, uh, at least researching this species around about 2008, understanding how to propagate it, its mycorrhizal and pollinator associations. But with the actual translocation, um, it's really, I think it's really critical 
that um, you treat them as experiments so that you always learn knowledge from them. And with this one, it's been really fantastic. When we started doing this, we didn't know much about introducing calodinias or orchids, period, and therefore whether it would be best to introduce uh, young seedlings that was, would still be considered an adult because they've passed that sort of initial seedling stage. So, so they were about 18 month old plants, but they're really quite small, but still not reproductively mature. We also introduced some that were mature. And from those initial uh, setups, we um, discovered that the really small plants wouldn't survive and from that, subsequently, we were introducing three-year-old plants um, and that really made, made a difference. From 2013 to 2018, Nushka and a very enthusiastic team planted just over 800 orchids in four different sites. After they discovered that the pollinator was present, amazingly identifying it as a single species of a thin iron wasp. As well as growing plants with their appropriate mycorrhizal fungi and identifying the optimum age for planting, they designed a microsite grid to measure things like litter depth, light and moisture and see how they influence survival and reproduction. Now, here's the kicker. Nushka and the team of very dedicated volunteers went out recently to do their monitoring and discovered something. Uh, <laughs> when I went out there and then I, I was just like oh yeah you know there's some recruits over here and there's some recruits over there and then I was just like oh my gosh and then I like looked over there and there was just like hundreds and I'm like oh. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah it was really exciting um and you know that's that's ultimately why we do this type of thing so that these these species are, are better off than they were yeah um, yeah, so, you know, I can live off that happiness for the next 20 years. <laughs> Once the right mycorrhiza were known and pollinators confirmed present, choosing the correct size of plants was the key to survival. And through monitoring the microsites, they found... That if we were to just choose those favourable microsites for both adults and seedlings, then we could improve the recruitment by another 40 to 60%, which is really exciting. Really setting things up so that you can test these questions down the track is really helpful. So, uh, you know, in order to save a threatened species from going extinct, one ultimately needs to be introducing them in the thousands. If you're going to do this again, you would then be putting in using the information that we've gathered, size, microsites, the pollinators, the fungi, we have all that data. And so it would be just, you know, rolling that out using uh, the knowledge that we've gained from this. And I think that's just so important when you're doing this threatened species work is, is acquiring that knowledge so that it can be used in the future. Okay. Why have I been banging on about all this ecological knowledge? Orchids are just one tiny part of the conservation equation, right? It seems like a huge investment of time and labour for these projects, which are so niche, aren't they? 
Orchids represent 16 to 70% of our nationally threatened flora. Having a specialised program that helps deal with some of the intricacies of that is really helpful. However, the lessons learnt are really applicable to many other threatened flora. Many of our Australian flora have specific pollinator associations. Some of our Australian plants require a vector to move the seed around or they might require disturbance for the seed to germinate. Orchids have a slightly more specific relationship in that the seed is unable to germinate without its mycorrhizal fungi in the wild. The majority of our other plants do have mycorrhizal associations and there's been lots of research that has shown that with their mycorrhizal fungi, they are healthier, more vigorous plants in the wild. Most of our peas actually require rhizobia to fix nitrogen. And even in order to grow them really effectively in the nursery, you know, these things work better. And a lot of these techniques are quite similar between mycorrhiza and rhizobia, the culture techniques, uh, the sequencing techniques, some of the inoculation techniques. So. There are lessons to be learnt about how we could then utilise these same techniques for other flora to understand them in the wild. The Caledonia project continues while there is funding to monitor. But it will wind down in intensity now it's going so well. The Thelemitra project continues also as long as Shannon's boss says it's okay. As with all these episodes, I want to leave you with this thought, and this is the last time I'm going to bang on about it, I promise. Should we be using translocation to conserve species, or should instead these resources be directed towards conserving the habitat that we have remaining? Um, I've always been quite optimistic about translocation, that I think it's an, an important part of the conservation story. I don't think, I've, I've heard some you know, very experienced practitioners basically write off translocation as being a, a bit of a token effort. Um, and, you know, in, in some cases it probably is, um, particularly in, in the mitigation space. Developers are coming in, they're gonna come in whether you like it or not. So you better move these plants and hopefully they survive somewhere else. That sort of thing, you know, probably gives translocation a bit of a bad name, but I think in terms of the the like the projects that I've been involved in, but the, the ones that um, to me have seen the, the most value have been these ones where we're, we're trying to either increase the abundance of, of a species in, in an area or um, try and find a, a better area for it to survive and, and hope for the best through that. And I, I don't think that could be achieved without translocation. I think if you just leave it up to nature when you've got all these other threats, um, you know, pest animals, um, pest plants, um, pest people, you know, <laughs> I don't think you can discount the importance of, of translocation in trying to get around some of those issues and, and trying to actually achieve good conservation outcomes. And you dance with your shadow as the sun, it warms your core, your blue eyes on the blue sky capture so much more. You don't worry about the clouds, for the rain is welcome too. Every morning the sun rises for you. Every morning 
the sun rises for you. Thank you for listening to Plant Heroes. Our gorgeous song is by Zoe Elliott, and you can get everybody's names in the show notes. A big thank you too to the volunteers that I spoke to that didn't make this episode, some of whom didn't want to. That's it for us. Uh, there will be no more Plant Heroes episodes, but I hope you've learned something. These podcasts and videos, which you can look at on the website, are all being created as part of my PhD about conserving plants. My name is Chantel. Please get in touch if you have any questions. Thank you and goodbye.